This is Lekker. I'm Lucy Dearlove. This month... Oranges and lemons. An example is that, or uh, two, a couple of other traditional things that we have. And one is a lahmacun, which is a thin flatbread topped with spiced lamb mince. And then you have it with a salad and squeeze a lemon, always. It's a sunny Monday lunchtime in January. And I'm sitting at a table in Selin Kyazim's Shoreditch restaurant, Oklava. Oklava is broadly a restaurant with Turkish influence, although Selin, who's British Cypriot, would prefer not to be pigeonholed as such. I always say if I like if I didn't have to be labelled, I'd prefer that. I just want it to be a great restaurant. I just and you know, on just be seen as a chef who cooks good food. The restaurant isn't open, but there are chefs bustling away behind the counter getting ready for service that evening. And while Selin and I are talking, she has half an eye on proceedings, profusely apologising before getting up to talk the chefs through something or pull a dish out of the oven. When people ask me what my favourite dish is, like, on the menu and stuff, I, uh, or in general, probably in life, I always say I probably couldn't pick one, but if I had to, it would probably be the lahmacun because it's like, it's got, you know, crispy bread. It's got lamb, chalov, and it's got acid. Then the salad, I love salad. And it's like everything, it's like a perfect mouthful, right? So I could eat those all day, every day. The question I ask myself is, you know, what is it, what makes a really great plate of food? What makes it like so delicious that you, you can't help but keep going back to it? And in my head, when I think about the dishes that I really love and the things that I'm like, oh, I can't get enough of that, that suit my taste buds, the, the, the three fundamental things are acid texture and contrast. This holy trinity is the subtitle of Selin's latest book, Three. Acid, texture and contrast. I think the most basic one is bringing acid with uh, rich things. So if you think any sort of fat, butter, creaminess, things like that, for me, and I think for, for most chefs as well, and kind of like more advanced cooks, it's like ingrained in you to think that needs acid, but a home cook won't necessarily think of that. So that's a, a part of the trying to teach people that at the beginning of the book is like, this is, this is what's happening in your head and in your mouth <laughs> and why you think. And I think acid, it gives it that, when you put that in, it, it uh, almost like makes your mouth water and makes you keep going back for more. And while acid in Selin's cooking comes from all sorts of varied and maybe even surprising sources, samphire, tomatoes, sauerkraut, she has a special place in her heart and her kitchen for the lemon. This is my inheritance. Lemon is an unmissable part of the Cypriot meal, she writes. I... uh love acid probably too much sometimes but like you know I and I think that stems from uh my mother's love of lemons in particular and I think that stems from the fact that she's uh, was born and brought up in Cyprus you know and that's 
it's quite a, it's quite a Cypriot thing, but with um, kebabs, which a lot of the time the you know, families getting together, especially in the summer months, but kind of all year round, uh, get round on a Sunday and they'll have big spreads and whatever. And there's always uh, lemon wedges on the on the table, and so you know you see it here as here as well with with Cypriots. I notice it's not so much a thing from Turkey. I've noticed it's quite different, but it's quite it's a very Cypriot thing to have the lemon wedges and you squeeze it, and whether it's your lamb shish or like lovely grilled kind of fatty sausages and things. Like the wedges of lemons served to squeeze over the delicious kebabs, citrus moves constantly and quietly through the veins of this country. Not entirely uncelebrated. Apparently our favourite cake as a nation is lemon drizzle. But it's rarely the main attraction, instead a supporting actor. Not just a friend to meet, it's found on the side of battered fish and raw shellfish alike, whether in polystyrene or silver platters. For the real elite citrus experience, you can find it dressed in a muslin jacket to shelter those among us who would never pick out their own pips. You can buy all manner of contraptions to extract the juice from it. It's neatly sliced into jewel-like wedges and stashed in perspex containers behind bars, ready for action. A glass of ice ready for gin and tonic or soda water looks naked without it. It's the title of one of our most famous nursery rhymes. People may not necessarily realise it, but I think that really fresh acid that comes from lemon, I think, um, excites people's palates and they don't realise what it's doing to them, but perhaps it's like hypnotising them and making them want more and more of it. <laughs> I don't think Selena's exaggerating. I think we are hypnotised by it. To me, the flavour of citrus feels irreplaceable in the exact opposite to the way that many fruits and vegetables feel interchangeable. The first time I really started to think about citrus was a few years ago, when I went to a talk on sustainability in restaurants with the chef Marie Mitchell. Someone who worked in the sustainable drinks fields talked about how their bar, which operated with a closed loop approach, was at odds with how many cocktail bars function in two areas in particular, ice and fresh fruit. He talks about how, instead of turning to citrus as the go-to sour element in many of their drinks, they experimented with sour ingredients which could be grown easily in this country and then juiced or otherwise processed and preserved to reduce waste, like rhubarb. I guess appropriately for a closed-loop philosophy, there's an unexpected, slightly pleasing circularity here. In Dorothy Hartley's Food in England, she notes that before citrus was widely available, sour notes in English food were delivered by verjuice, produced from native crab apples, or barberries, or gooseberries, which went native but arrived in England in the 1530s and grew abundantly here. It was only in the 19th century, she said, when a squeeze of lemon fully replaced verjuice in many dishes. For some reason, I held a misconception for years that our citrus consumption in this country was a very modern addiction, like avocados or even bananas. And it's true that they are now more widely and cheaply available than at any other point in history. But the English obsession with citrus fruit goes back a lot further than you might think. Just as Selin describes how citrus perfectly cuts through fatty meat, English cooking from the 1600s onwards was pairing lemon when available with dishes like hen of the wake, boiling fowl, ragout of pig's ears and jugged hare. 
Margaret Visser, in her book Much Depends on Dinner, describes how first citrus sweets called sucat arrived in England from Spain and Portugal not long after the Crusaders had first tasted the fruit in the Holy Land at the end of the 12th century. And a century after that, the fruit itself was also to be found being transported northwards. As Kate Cahoon discusses in her book Taste, by 1534, Henry VIII's household was using enough citrus in its cooking to warrant buying an orange strainer. This could be attributed, perhaps, to his first wife Catherine of Aragon's background. The use of sour Seville orange juice in red meat stews and pies, and pairing fish and poultry with lemons. But the Elizabethan era saw a rise in cookbooks printed for householders, not professional cooks, and it was clear from these that citrus had firmly entered the consciousness of English cookery. Greater quantities were imported during this era, and prices started to decrease slightly. The historian Dr John Gallagher points me in the direction of Giacomo Castrovetro, who he describes as a 16th century Italian refugee who spent a significant amount of time in England. Castelvetro's book, The Fruits, Herbs and Vegetables of Italy, which was reissued in the late 80s with a foreword from Jane Grigson, was written as a reaction to his horror about how few vegetables English people ate. Hoping to encourage the English to consume and grow more fruits and vegetables, in the book he lists seasonal varieties from Italy, along with preparation and cooking suggestions. Many of them include a dressing made from salt and pepper, olive oil and bitter orange juice. I wonder how he would have felt about bitter oranges being absorbed into the historical canon of English food, but not primarily as a dressing for homegrown seasonal vegetables. As Helena Attlee recounts the story in her beautiful book about citrus cultivation in Italy, the land where lemons grow, at the beginning of the 18th century, stormy weather forced a Spanish ship laden with Seville's to take shelter in the harbour at Dundee. James Keeler, a local grocer, bought the cargo at a very low price, only to discover that the oranges were sour, not sweet, and he was unable to sell them whole. His mother Janet had the idea of substituting oranges for the quinces she usually used to make marmalade, because traditionally, marmalade was made with quinces. The orange marmalade proved so popular with customers of their shop that Janet began to make it every year, And by 1797, the demand was so great that the family opened a marmalade factory in Dundee. The word zest, which we now interchangeably use in English as a noun or verb referring to the outer fragrant skin of the citrus and removing it respectively, and also as a descriptor of someone's enthusiasm for life, has been in usage since 1670s France. First used to refer to skin or peel generally, and then later more specifically to the skin of citrus fruits, which could add flavour. As early as the 1790s, an understanding of keen enjoyment was attributed to its meaning. But I think I I find lemon, uh, well, and all citrus actually, but they're really, they're such interesting fruits because the juice is so different from the zest I find and I actually like I use lemon zest in some things but rarely because I I find it I can I find it like too dominating sometimes in certain things and I think it I I think there's a real subtlety to how you need to 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 use it 
That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> there is, right? Because yeah. especially in thing and like with a lemon tart, right? Some people like they're absolute avid bow down to the lemon tart kind of thing. And there's very few that I've ever had that I'm like, oh, that's that's really delicious and I can finish it. But I, I just find it, which is strange because I love lemons, but then I'm like this with that amount of sugar and stuff that goes into it, it I don't know, it just does something weird with my palate that makes me go, oh, I don't know, I can't, I can't eat too much of that. And so often here, I don't know, there's been a dressing or something that we make and I'll be like, oh, I'll put, you know, squeeze one or two lemons into it and they'll be like, zestu? Like almost every time, like every chef would say to me, zestu? And I'd be like, no. And they're always like, what? And I'm like, they're like, it's gonna make it more lemony. And I'm like, yeah, but in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. <laughs> wrong kind of lemony. <laughs> wrong kind of lemony, <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to write about peeling and about skin. <laughs> I always do find myself writing about food, even if the overall project isn't necessarily food focused. Nina Minga Powers is a writer, editor and publisher who was born in Aotearoa, New Zealand, partly grew up in China and now lives in London. Her book Small Bodies of Water was published last year. It's a lyrical, atmospheric collection of essays which see Nina submerged in different bodies of water all around the world, exploring themes of movement, migration and transformation. Small Bodies of Water is like mostly about uh, swimming and water and migration, but... I couldn't help but think about fruit, I think, <laughs> and the connections that uh, fruit brings me in particular. Like, I think I really associate mandarins with my mum. I think I don't really know anyone else who eats as many mandarins as I do except my mum. <laughs> so tell me about your relationship with citrus. <laughs> um, so I'm obsessed with fruit and I can like like if my body could I could probably almost like survive on fruit if my body would let me <laughs> um, and I think particularly at this time of year I'm like living off mandarins specifically <laughs> and I think I always have um, so I grew up in New Zealand and in winter time, so June, July, uh, those like mandarins are in such abundance. And then I think as I got older, I became more aware of mandarins and also pomelo being like really, really culturally significant, uh, especially at New Year's Chinese New Year time. Mm. And like when you visit a temple or if you see like a family shrine at home, there's usually like a bowl of mandarins. And I didn't grow up with that element of like um, the spiritual element of mm. Chinese culture really at all. But they kind of generally, they symbolize good fortune, prosperity, um, particularly at New Year, and then also their like uh, 
offerings um, that you would give. So I really like that as well. And so now that you're living in London, yeah. which is a city where you're not from, like you didn't grow up, do you feel like there's a set, you know, does, does it make you homesick? Or is there a kind of like, do you eat them to be comforted and reminded of home? Yeah, definitely, I think I do. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's taken a while for me to find like my favorite London mandarins, but I think <laughs> I think I find them at corner shops, especially like Spanish uh, clementines, and they usually have the leaves attached. <laughs> oh my gosh, we've just come we've just like crazy mellow. At this point, Nina and I had just rounded the corner from Lyle Street into Gerrard Street, the main bit of London's Chinatown. It was late January, right before Lunar New Year, and the streets were packed with people, lanterns, and piles of citrus in crates. Nina suggested this location for our conversation, and it felt wildly appropriate for two reasons. The first being, of course, that citrus fruit came from China in the first place. As John McPhee notes in his book Oranges, the first known reference to this fruit occurs in the second book of the five classics, which appeared in China around 500 BC, and is generally regarded as having been edited by Confucius. He describes the fruit's journey over many thousands of miles and years, from its origins near the South China Sea, down into the Malay archipelago, and then on 4,000 miles of ocean current to the east coast of Africa, along the desert by caravan, and into the Mediterranean basin, and then over the Atlantic to the American continents. It sometimes exactly kept pace with the major journeys of civilization, he writes. While there are now many hundreds of varieties of fruit, there are three ancestral species in the genus Citrus associated with modern citrus cultivars. Mandarin orange, pomelo and citron. All are still familiar to us by these names today. I have only ever once eaten citron at a supper club by the chef and writer Tom Eagle, where it was served thinly sliced and salted and where another guest delightfully referred to it as a fatty lemon on account of its thick white rind. I must have eaten thousands of mandarin oranges over the years, despite the fact that, as Helena Attlee notes, they were the last member of the citrus genus to reach Europe. And this is going to be my first time eating a pomelo. Ah, so these ones say red pomelo. Is that the same as honey? Well, these ones obviously will be pink inside. Maybe the honey ones Sorry. <laughs> will not be pink inside. I'm not sure. I think we should buy a red one then. Okay. Yeah, pink flesh. Pink class one. <laughs> I think, should we get one of these? Yeah. I'm kind of... Squeezing it, but I don't really know what I'm it's looking for. It's kind of hard because it's so like wrapped in plastic as yeah. well. Like, because you've got the kind of layer of plastic. And I then like the... that this one's not giant. Some of them are really giant. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna get one of these as well. Yeah. So that's pretty good price for a pomelo, I would say, ah. in London. <laughs> okay. This one for the customers. Yeah. Just hang up. If we go around. Uh, okay. Cool. Yeah. In small bodies of water. Nina describes buying honey pomelos from a fruit shop while she was a student in Shanghai. Should we get any mandarins as well? Oh yeah. We could get like a... A little bag. 
The man in the shop expertly cuts the skin and the pith away from the flesh, and the fruit skin rips noisily away from the membrane. Are they? Yeah, yeah they look yeah. good. It's a violent, tender process, Nina writes. As such, we decide not to eat our pomelos there and then, saving them for later when we both have access to a sharp knife and somewhere we can make a mess. Cashier number four, please. Do you want to put one yeah. in your bag? And yeah. Should we go and um, eat a mandarin? Yeah, definitely. I personally would just like, when I get home, I'll probably sort of take the peel off by like making a cut and then just <laughs> ripping the skin off with my hands. Cause it does, I think if it's ripe enough, it will just come away. Mm. It's very satisfying. Mm. And then like, it's got these massive segments and I'll just kind of <laughs> Yeah, with like my hands, it. I'll just pull pull them apart, but then maybe put like a like a quarter of the pomelo in like a little bowl and just okay. eat it with my hands. Okay. <laughs> but you do end up probably yeah, like sucking some of the vesicles. <laughs> I think that's what <laughs> like Great the inside words. of the yeah the fruitiest bit, okay. the flesh. Mm. I guess maybe I think the the individual because you know yeah. They're like little pellets. Exactly. I think vesicles. Yeah. That's amazing. So. It might be like a medical word as well. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine like a blood so it's like a vessel. vessel or something. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. They're very like in a pomelo. They're very solid. Like pronounced. There's not okay. this like juice happening. Because I feel like in a bad orange, they're often mm. pronounced yeah. quite dry. Dry. Yeah. But so that pomelos, actually, when you open it, it might seem like it's going to be dry. Mm. But then when you bite into a chunk of vesicles. <laughs> it's not very appealing. No. It's a good word. Um, yeah, then it can be quite, it'll be really juicy. Okay. It's just that they've got a lot of like yeah. structural integrity. Yeah, but I actually don't really know how other people eat pomelo. It's not a thing that I've really eaten like With communally. I would always kind of do what we just did, like mm. buy one at a shop and then take it home and eat it on my own. <laughs> and that's what I still do. Mm. But I did read that the, the skin, I think, is sometimes used, like in Cantonese cooking, they will like cook it, like braise it. Oh. Which is really interesting. Not mm. so much the flesh, but I feel like surely also the flesh might be used. Mm. But I've never had it um, in like and a would savory you, would dish. You eat the, would you eat the skin? I or personally just, wouldn't. Yeah, because <laughs> I feel like if you're going to braise that, it's still Yeah, I be, don't know. I guess it would just give a lot of flavor to I feel, so I read quite often when I'm like searching for like customs about Chinese festivals or something, I found find myself on these really annoying websites they're like chinatravelguide.com <laughs> and they're like quite badly written and they're like aimed at I'm guessing like tourists or, or people who want to like live in China or something. But these are the ones that come up when you like <laughs> like the top like Google hits oh, so I very often like trying to corroborate um, corroborate sorry these um, these really annoying website pages yeah. that will have like symbolism of Chinese fruits or something yeah. 
and you're trying to like read between the lines of exactly like, yeah. and like read deeper and figure out some context like because it's not written I, I don't I guess I'm kind of guessing it's written for uh, not someone like me yeah it is like a tourist thing so it's yeah. quite a base level understanding but that is where I end up quite often finding answers to these questions but it was on a website like that where I read something about Pamela being cooked Okay. Like, okay. Parts of Pamela being cooked, okay. particularly for good luck, around Chinese New Year. So I don't know if that's true, but according to travel website, potentially it's true. The second reason why it's appropriate for Nina and I to be walking the streets of central London looking for citrus is that there's a historical precedent for this too. The things I read about the history of citrus in royal courts of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries made it seem like it was reserved mostly for the elite, even when the prices did start to decrease. But the historian Dr Charlie Taverner, whose work centres around street food, particularly during the 17th and 18th centuries, sets me straight. Citrus was sold by street sellers in London in numbers that are mind-boggling to me. In 1662 to 63, almost 750,000 oranges and lemons were shipped in from Spain and two and a half million from Portugal. By the end of the 17th century, those figures had risen to 4 million and 7 million, respectively. Charlie's thesis, Selling Food in the Streets, also explains potential misconceptions about how much citrus was being consumed and by whom. He describes how, in the 1630s, the author James Hart suggested that oranges were mostly cooking ingredients. Hart liked sour varieties, but found sweet ones had no purpose. However, as Charlie continues, this is not how oranges come across in evidence of street vending. Across London, they were sold from barrows and in playhouses as sweet snacks. The taste for sweeter oranges may have developed over the 17th century as greater volumes arrived. In 1700, he writes, John Houghton, an apothecary and writer, estimated that London consumed a quarter of all oranges shipped into England. Citrus fruit were carried in the eye of all about the streets, where they were very much consumed by ordinary people. Perhaps how fruit was bought, he writes, often as small street-side parcels, explains why this has been concealed. i found that there's a sort of mythology about the history of citrus in London. The discovery of vitamin C as a scurvy cure and the subsequent adoption of first lemon and then limes as an integral part of the British Navy's victuals is well documented. Several sources cite this as a reason for the naming of Limehouse, the point on the Thames where cargo was unloaded from ocean-going ships and set on its way on the London Canal system. But other sources I read debunk this, describing the lime kilns built there as the actual reason. The nursery rhyme Oranges and Lemons is said to have originated as a result of the location of St Clement's Danes Church on the Strand, where citrus was apparently first unloaded. But Dr Charlie Taverner's work describes Billingsgate, the old site near London Bridge, not the newer market, which lies much further east than St Clement's as the main arrival site for imported fruit. 
One of the fundamental questions I wanted but felt unable to answer while making this episode was why we, people living in a country with a climate that can't meaningfully sustain citrus cultivation at the scale we'd need, are so obsessed with lemons, oranges, limes, grapefruits and many other citrus fruits. It feels so ingrained in our food, our culture, our art even. And I can't help feeling that there's something about living in a dark, cold country that leads us to dream of bright yellow, orange and green. Do you know the land where lemons grow is actually a translated line from Goethe's poem Mignon. It continues, In darkened leaves the gold oranges glow, a soft wind blows from the pure blue sky. Helena Attlee also wrote about the other travellers from Northern Europe who have been historically thrilled by the sight of Italian citrus trees, Hans Christian Andersen and D.H. Lawrence to name but two. You think there would be less surprise from Northern Europeans nowadays, but I can vouch for my own excessive excitement when a holiday let in Cyprus turned out to have its own lemon tree ready for picking. In Small Bodies of Water, the essay Unpeel reflects on the outer and inner layers of fruit, but also ourselves. I think also of, of peeling fruit as a very, uh, like a symbol of affection, mm. which I think is really common across some different cultures, like not just um, Chinese or East Asian, but yeah, fruit is very often given as a gift, mm. which is really lovely. Um, I noticed that when I lived in Shanghai, fruit would often be given as a gift, particularly at the New Year. Yeah, I wanted to write about the skin of the fruit and the act of peeling and uh, yeah, the symbolism around that uh, and the memories. Yeah, it feels like there's so much care inherent in that act because it's like a quite a painstaking thing. And like, exactly. And you write in the, the, the chapter Unpeel about like peeling the pith of yeah. segments for a friend. Like, you know, it's just the so, it's so painstaking and like there's so much effort <laughs> that goes into it. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a really actually, beautiful gesture of affection. That particular type of Mandarin that I think reminds me of being a teenager, like in, in midwinter, they'd be quite small and you'd be able to peel them really easily. See so when you'd pick them up, they'd be cold, mm. and you could feel like the like if you squish them, not too hard, but <laughs> then you could kind of feel a gap between the actual fruit and the skin. Mm. So you could get your thumb under it really easily. And so we'd eat those like at morning tea at school, and yeah. And I had a friend who like wouldn't want to eat the little white strands. <laughs> I guess when you're a teenager, you have these weird things, and um, yeah, I remember like removing those and we'd like share a mandarin uh, which is very sweet mm. now it's very sweet <laughs> obviously small bodies of water is about in part about swimming and being in water do, do you think in a sense a citrus fruit is a small body of water yes <laughs> yes and I you've reminded me that I think I was like I wasn't thinking that at first, but then 
it made yeah it makes so much sense because mm. they actually are because they're contained and like unlike and another piece water. of fruit they're like, just, just water <laughs> yeah okay i'm so pleased to say that because i was like and, am yeah. i reaching <laughs> and i really wanted if like i didn't know how it would work but i was hoping that there could be like a pomelo or citrus on the cover uh, because it's like that's a small body of water it's fine though i, I really love how the cover came the cover out. does look great it's okay yeah. but next book maybe should have like an orange on the cover yes or something i think um, yeah but they they did end up doing beautiful little illustrations and yeah. the illustrator drew a pomelo which is really lovely so there is a yeah. pomelo. but yes Exactly. Yeah, because it is like there isn't really any other fruit, there's, and it's because you were talking about like the contain the containment yeah. of it, and, and they it does like do... yeah, there is something fleshy particularly mm. about them. I guess lots of fruit have that, but the softness, mm. uh, the way there's like different layers of skin, mm. Uh, mm. and the texture of like orange and mandarin skin is sometimes a bit reminiscent of our skin <laughs> yeah gross, but... i mean like even just the look of it like yeah with the, it's almost got pores yeah like <laughs> so this is a bit weird but it just reminded me so i'm allergic to nuts mm. so i carry an EpiPen, and when i was a kid i remember like me and my mum and dad practicing on oranges mm. the EpiPen. yeah that's what they tell yeah. you to do <laughs> oh my god yeah because it's the closest thing but like texturally yeah, I guess they could be quite like, the skin could be quite hard and, and thicker but like mm. some, yeah but it's like your thigh yeah <laughs> oh my god and because it is you're like entering like a barrier and then there's more, like something wet no that's weird <laughs> muscular <laughs> but yeah. it's sort of the same yeah. like makeup yeah yeah we have more in common with them than we think <laughs> Later that evening, when we're both at home, Nina sends me a photo of her eating the fruit. My pomelo is so red, she says. I can't resist cutting into mine straight away too, ripping the skin and the thick pith away from the flesh. As Nina described, the vesicles are large and distinct. And she's right, it does somehow look dry. But as soon as I bite into a segment, it's the juiciest, most delicious fruit. This episode of Lekker was written, produced and hosted by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks so much to Selin and Nina for being a part of this episode. Three... Acid Texture Contrast by Selin Kiazim and Small Bodies of Water by Nina Minga Powells are both out now. And thanks also to the long list of writers and academics whose work contributed to this exploration of citrus. I've listed a full bibliography on the Lekker website because it's a fascinating topic and there's so many directions I could have gone, there's so many great details I missed out because I just didn't have space. I read so many brilliant books and articles while making this episode, so I really invite you to check them out as well. If you would like to support Lekker, you can donate to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. There are now monthly free newsletters for Patreon followers and monthly bonus podcast episodes for paid Patreon subscribers. Other ways you can support Lekker? 
rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, buy merch from the Lekka Big Cartel site, and tell your friends. Ben McDonald creates original illustrations for every episode of Lekka, and they're beautiful. You can see those on Instagram and Twitter, at Lekka Podcast. I'm also posting sporadically on TikTok with the same handle. I'm quite scared of TikTok, so come and join me. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'll be back in your podcast feeds next month. Thanks for listening.